Behind every good story is an interesting person. This is Person of Interest with Q102's Jeff Thomas. Hillary Widener is a wife and mother of two who also happens to work just one floor below us as a digital brand strategist. In March of 2015, her and her husband's life changed forever when their firstborn child, Beatrice, was diagnosed with a rare liver disease at just two months old. It wasn't long before they realized that the only cure for her daughter was going to be a liver transplant. This is a story of beating the odds, listening to your instinct as a parent, and coming out the other side of a challenge profoundly changed. What's remarkable about Hillary is how soul-bearingly honest she is. She doesn't profess to have all the answers to everything life throws at her. She's still navigating some things, but it is her bravery, the love she has for her family, and her tenacious, uncompromising attitude that makes her this week's person of interest. So you were born and raised in Cincinnati. Yes, born in Cincinnati. I grew up in Mount Lookout, and still uh, my mom lives at my parents' house. Still in the same house I grew up in. Still the same house. Still you're same house. you're one of three girls. Three girls, older sister, younger sister. So I'm the middle yeah. child, proudly, might I add. Um, yeah, and we went to Carnal Pacelli. All three of us went to St. Ursula. And then my parents went to Miami of Ohio. This is very cookie cutter, actually. My parents went to Miami of Ohio, met there, became Miami mergers. So my older sister decided to go there. And then I followed her and went to Miami of Ohio as well. What'd you study? Marketing. Loved marketing. Um, actually, coincidentally, that's what she studied. I always joke that I basically just lived her life just a few years behind her. And is that where you met your husband or was he someone that you so, met from here? No, I. that's a great question. So we actually, we both were attending Miami at the time. I was a freshman. He was a junior, but we were home for Christmas break. And we actually met at Dana Gardens, if you're familiar with that bar, um, over by XU's campus, a little hole in the wall. On New Year's Eve. Um, and then we both ended up going back to Miami for school and then just continued dating from there. So since freshman year of college, and then I moved away for a little bit and then came back. And that was it. That was it. Got out of college. Got out of college, moved to Chicago, did some marketing. I worked for a company that owned about 30 really small town newspapers across the country. And so about 12 weeks out of the year, I traveled to places like Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, um, Blackfoot, Idaho, and stay there and then um, do some digital marketing there and then come back to Chicago. And what did you learn from traveling to all these exotic places? Yeah, it was very exciting. Um, I, you know what? I learned that it that I could pretty much survive in whatever circumstance. You know, I was used to being around a lot of family, a lot of friends. I was always surrounding myself with people I had grown up with and being away so much out of that city and going to travel, not knowing anybody, not knowing where I was, um, was definitely challenging. But I really think it it helped me become more independent. So you got married in 2012. Yes. And then you got pregnant with your first child. Yeah. Jordan and I were married for a little bit. And then we got pregnant and had our first daughter, Beatrice, at the end of December of 2014. We were so excited. Um, didn't really know what to expect. It was the first grandchild on my side of the family. So everybody was very excited. Um, yeah, it was a pretty easy pregnancy, easy delivery, nothing, you know, exciting. Pretty but uneventful. Pretty uneventful in a good way. In a good way. Everything went pretty smoothly. And then yeah. came the two-month yes. checkup. Yeah, the two-month checkup. So 
we had Beatrice at the end of December in 2012 and brought her home, healthy, happy baby, no red flags, except she was just jaundice when she was born. And not just crazy looking jaundice, just regular jaundice. And everybody said, you'll have to stick her under lights or um, she'll grow out of it. And we went for her, you know, week by week checkup as all new moms know how that goes. You're worried about everything. And that was just one of the things that was on the list of, you know, she's looking a little yellow and the pediatrician said, she'll grow out of it. She'll grow out of it. So it's not that unusual. Not that unusual. Actually, the thing that got that was pretty unusual is when we took her to her eight week checkup. Her, the whites of her eyes looked yellow. She was getting a lot yellower, but the whites of her eyes turned yellow. And when we pointed that out to the pediatrician, they said, nothing to be alarmed about, but we're going to send you for blood work. And then I took her that morning to... Always feel confident on your second date. With help from the Plastic Surgery Group, schedule a consultation at 513-791-4440 or at theplasticsurgerygroup.com. Surgery has an I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game, and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Well, um, I think it was TriHealth to get her blood work done. And I remembered so distinctly having this teeny little eight-week-old baby They pricked her heel with the teeniest little needle and I was undone over it. I was like, oh my gosh, this poor little thing. You know, she's screaming and all this stuff. And they took like a drop of blood and that was it. We went home. Um, I remember my husband brought home flowers that night because he was like, I know you had a rough day. We put her to bed. We were drinking a glass of wine and I got a call from the pediatrician that night at 9 p.m. saying you need to go to Cincinnati Children's Hospital right now immediately pack up your stuff and go and that's basically what we did i grabbed two things i'll never forget i obviously i was like had jordan go grab b i grabbed the diaper bag and i grabbed a rosary because i was like this cannot this does not sound good and at this point what did you know all i knew is that her test came back abnormal and that typically kids with bilirubin levels that are high like that it's typically an indirect bilirubin level meaning it's typically jaundice meaning this was related to her liver it was related to her liver so when you have bilirubin levels that are high and it's a direct bilirubin level it means basically that your body's filling with poison your bile everybody passed by passes bile she was not and her body was just filling up with it that's why the whites of her eyes were turning yellow her skin was neon it was just, and, and when that happens, you have, can have organ failure, not just liver, but it can really affect everything, stunted growth, um, all of the things that are indicators that this is very fatal. So knowing that, that her test came back irregular, we rushed her to the hospital and we waited for a doctor at Cincinnati Children's, got out of bed, Dr. Coley, got out of bed in the middle of the night and met us in the room and kind of started explaining what was going on. At that point, did you know that there would be a liver transplant in her future? So it was like one in the morning by the time we sat down with Dr. Coley and he basically said, 
The only way we can figure out what is going on, which is what we think is going on, is called biliary atresia. Biliary atresia. Biliary atresia. And the only way we can confirm that is if we cut this baby open and look on her insides. And once we cut her open, we look on the insides, we say, okay, she's obviously not draining this bile. Then we're going to try to move forward with the surgery. And that's basically what they did. So that we were admitted on a Monday. On Friday, she had an eight-hour procedure where they opened her up, confirmed she had biliary atresia. Then they did a surgery called a Kasai, which basically they rework her ductwork to try to drain the bile from her body. And that means the bile would drain, her skin color would drain, her eye color would drain, um, and that's the hope. But to answer your question, when we met with Dr. Coley, he said 30% of the time this surgery is a success until the child turns six, and then they need a transplant. 30% it's a success till they turn 15 and then they need a transplant and 30% it's a success till they're out of college and then they need a transplant and 10% of the time it doesn't work at all. This was one of those 10% that it didn't work. Didn't work. So they sent us home. She was looking good. We knew the the bile was started to drain. I was home for probably, we were home with her for probably three days and um, all of this is going on while I'm still on maternity leave too. So there was a point also where Beatrice was in the hospital down the street and I came back from maternity leave was working here going to the hospital showering staying with her overnight my husband and I would switch then come back to work and it was back and forth from the hospital to work and we found out her surgery didn't work and we went back to the hospital for another 10-day stint while they tried to figure out what the next step was going to be and at what point did you know this is inevitable? We got to put her on a list. You know, before I heard confirmation from the doctors, I knew. You knew. I, yeah. I just, when it when I could tell it wasn't working, and I'll never forget this, you know, you have few moments in your life where I feel like you have snapshots of things that you just remember and you can visually remember. And I grew up pretty much living a life where I didn't worry Really, I mean, I did great in school. I was playing sports. I had friends. My family was awesome. Nothing. I had never gone through something challenging, I would say. And I was like, okay, this is my thing. This is everyone has their thing. This is my thing. And she came home from the hospital. I started to tell that the surgery did not work. But we told the doctors, if you're realizing that the surgery isn't working, you need to call Jordan, not Hillary. You need to call Jordan because Hillary, I just was not in a good place about it. And Jordan called me and he was like, Hillary, where are you? And I was like, I'm home with B. He's like, okay, I'm on my way home. You need to start packing her stuff. We have to go back. And I was just undone. I mean, he came home and I've never shared this before because it kind of makes me sound crazy. But I, in that moment, he came home. I saw him walk into the nursery. I'm holding her in the rocking chair. I'm like, I'm not going. I'm not going back. We're not going back. She's fine. She'll be fine. We're not going back. And he's like, you need to give me the baby. Yeah. We have to go. And I was just not going to give her up because I was like, I don't want to go back there. I knew what it meant if we were going back. And eventually we made our way back and sat down with the doctors to kind of talk about what the next steps would be. At what point did you decide putting her on a list for a liver transplant is not going to be adequate? Well, you wouldn't have known that you could make a living donation until you were tested. So was that even an option at that point? Yeah. So Jordan and I, so the plan was that Beatrice was going to be listed. Um, and as, if anybody knows really how that list works, it's basically the sicker the kid, the higher up on the list that they go. And we just were not prepared to watch her health deteriorate 
like that. So we started doing research. You can donate kidneys, you know, what's going on with the liver. And we found that in Japan and in Canada, living donation for liver was a really big opportunity and people did it there. And we talked to the doctors at Cincinnati Children's and said, do you do this? And, you know, what what are our options here? And they said, last time we did this was in 2000, I think it was 10 or 12. And it was because a baby was going to die. And this is our last resort. And I said, well, how is that family doing now? And they said, she's six years old and she's doing phenomenally well. And I said, well, would you ever entertain us to do something like that? And they said, well, you have to be tested. It's really rare that you're a match. It's very, very dangerous for a living donor for surgery like that because that that uh, organ is so vascular, you can bleed out very easily. But we just weren't going to give up. We talked to every doctor. When we got no's, we weren't taking a no. So we just pushed and pushed and just said, let us get tested. Let us get tested just to see if it's even an option. And the mom is a better donor until the child turns three. So I started testing. And if I had a block in my testing, then my husband was going to jump in. And if he had a block, we had a very generous donation for my younger sister who doesn't have any kids yet herself. She is Beatrice's godmother and was ready to jump in and do, um, and actually wanted to do it even before I got tested. So, but you know, I, we moved forward with getting me tested and it was eight weeks worth of testing every type of test you can imagine getting. And I found out that I was a match eight weeks later. But still doctors were resistant. Resistant. Ha- yeah. why, why do you think that is? I think because the system's in place because it works. I think it works and they were like, let the system work. This will work for her. But I just like all moms out there. I just in my gut was like, I'm just not prepared to sit back and watch her get sicker. I carried around a pager while I was here at work where if it went off, I had to leave wherever I was and go to the hospital because that means she had an organ that was available. But I just was, I just wasn't prepared to just continue watching her get sicker. Would there have been a chance if you had waited as she got sicker that the symptoms would escalate faster than your access oh, yeah. to a liver? Absolutely. Yeah. So kids get priority, which is a good thing in this case, but she stopped growing. Um, she stopped growing in length. She stopped gaining weight. She was not functioning like a normal child. She had a feeding tube that we had to put in. Um, she was get, She was very ill. And my point to the hospital was not only... If this works out and I am a willing participant to donate this organ, when an organ does become available that you would have given B, you can now give it to another child that doesn't have an option. And we can transplant B at the peak of her health, meaning she's not healthy, but before she gets too sick and then a transplant becomes in question because she's so sick, can she even receive the organ? So our point was, I'm a match. Let us do it. We can transplant her before she gets too sick which in my opinion means that the likelihood she'll do better long-term is higher. Yeah. Yeah. And it took some convincing, but um, they, they said we could get tested and I got tested and I was a match. And then we still listed her um, because it took so long to schedule the surgery date. So we were like, if an organ pops up beforehand, it was meant to be. If not, then we're going to move forward with our surgery. As you're going through this, how are you able to sleep at night? Not well. I would think this is just all consuming. It is all consuming and it's, it was really difficult, you know, but I also, I can't imagine the people that go through this that have other children to worry about. And she was our sole focus and we did everything for her. And 
you don't let your mind go to the negative, but we did have to put some things in place like living wills and, um, you know, estate planning, things that you wouldn't think of as a 27, 28 year old mom going into the surgery where there's a likelihood that you could not come out that you need to plan accordingly. And not only that, of course, you're thinking about losing a child the whole time. Did you ask the doctor at any point, did you say, look, if I, if I do this, you know, what are, what are her odds of making through this surgery and what are my odds of making it through the surgery? You know, I had a conversation. So when, when we move forward with planning the surgery date, they basically had to shut down the liver department at children's. They had to pull in four of the top leading liver surgeons in the country, two sets of nurses, two sets of anesthesiology teams, two sets of everything and side by side operating rooms. So they could literally Take out a piece of my liver, walk it over, and stick it inside of her. Just a piece of your liver. Fifteen percent, just a little piece. Hmm. It's not not much, but and the, that is um, and that will be the idea is that that will be her sole liver to start, and then it will grow as grow. she grows. Correct. Yeah, yeah. they're not attaching it. To no, they existence. took that thing out, and it Removed was it hard together. as a rock. Yep, and so one of the top leading livers. We just moved into a house in High Park, and four houses down from us, we met our neighbor who is the top leading liver surgeon in the country. So this is all very coincidental and we were so thankful, but she was the lead on Beatrice's surgery. And then I had two surgeons on my, and um, the man actually who started liver program at children's flew up from Florida to also be on B's team. But we had a conversation. You had to go through this transplant boot camp where you sit down with finance, psychology, every single department of children is to make sure you're making this decision with sound of mind knowing the financial implications with insurance and all those things. And when we started talking about the physical surgery, I looked at my surgeon, both of them, and I said, if something happens in that other room, you leave me. Leave me. And you make sure that Beatrice makes it through this surgery. It was just, you know, you just want to do everything you can to make sure that they live and they survive. Yeah. Yeah. And they... Are so professional. I mean, I'm such a passion for the hospital. But he said, Dr. Tiao said to me, you are my patient. You are my sole focus. She's got her team in there. She will be just fine. And so will you. So it, it kind of hurt that he wasn't going to be so easy just to swing in the other room. But at the same time, it made me feel confident that I was going to be fine too. And this, we're talking about a 12-hour surgery. Yeah, it was 12 hours, um, side-by-side operating rooms. I was in before her so they could prep me, and then I was out before her, so she was in longer. But, yeah, they had my family in a private waiting room at Children's, and there was a nurse that I had talked to beforehand that would come out every hour from the operating room and give the family an update. So it was Jordan's parents. His brother flew in from Denver. My parents, my sister's. Um, and then my brother-in-laws, I believe, were there too. And I knew how big of a wreck my husband was going to be. Um, you know, it was just just so, so hard for him. I always joke that I had the easy job because I was asleep during the whole thing. But yeah. if he was awake during all of that. And so I worked with the nurse. And every time, every hour she came out with an update, I also had put together 12 cards for him. So every hour she came out, gave him a card that was from me. The handwritten note about it. So it just felt hopefully that he had some comfort during mm. that, that long day, long day, long day, long day, long day. There is that moment. And I believe it was when they wheeled you into the room 
was that before the surgery? After. That was after the surgery. Yeah, that was the day after. So after the surgery, we both were in the ICU and couldn't be in the same rooms, obviously for, for germs and all that stuff. But when I was cleared, so we both recovered at Children's. Our surgery was at Children's. We recovered at Children's. Um, and yeah, I was able, they wheeled me into her room like a day after, um, so I could see her and it was like the best feeling. My first words when I woke up, they said were, how's B, how's B doing? Um, and then I was able to see her just the day later. Please tell me they gave you an answer right away and they didn't say, well, we're going to let the doctor. Come yeah, in and no, they were like, she's good. She's fine. <laughs> right. She's good. She did great. She did great. So yeah, we try to record as much as we could video wise throughout. I mean, we have so much footage of the whole thing, but that's my definitely my favorite, my my best part of going to go see her for the first time. At what point did you know that the surgery had gone well? Not just that the surgery went well, but that she was going to be okay. How soon after the surgery? So this is going to kind of sound crazy, but they say that the first year after surgery is very indicative of how they'll do long term. So I didn't really feel comfortable until after we hit that one year mark. Um, the further out from surgery you are, the less likely without complications, the less likely you are for rejection. So you hit the one milestone after surgery uh, without any complications. That's a milestone. Three months, you know, so on and so forth. And going back to the living donation part, we hit a lot of milestones earlier than your typical patient. So she was supposed to be in the hospital recovering from her transplant two to three weeks. Or maybe hers was three to four. She was out in two. I was supposed to be in there um, two to three weeks and I was out in under a week. So ahead of the gate, I felt good about it. I felt like she was so strong. Any hard conversations we had about her health leading up to her surgery and post-surgery, we had outside of her room because I'm a big believer of positive energy. And although she may not be able to understand what we were saying, I just didn't want her to get any bad energy in that room. And so she went home it was a struggle. We had to set up her room at home as a um, her nursery turned into a hospital room. We had home health care visits all the time. Nurses drawing blood at the house, and she was in isolation for a year. She was allowed technically really out of the house or in crowds for over a year. And once we hit that year mark, and she did really well, it was a huge, huge milestone. Coming up next, what happened after that first year, how Beatrice is doing now, and the unforgettable life lessons Hillary has learned. She'll share those with us next. We'll be back with more Person of Interest in a moment. Welcome back to Person of Interest. Our guest this episode is Hillary Widener, whose daughter, Beatrice, was diagnosed with biliary artresia, a rare liver disease. After six weeks of testing, Hillary found out that she was a match for B and was able to donate a portion of her liver to her daughter. So what happened after that first year? How is Beatrice doing now? And what has Hillary taken from this experience that she wants to share with the world? A few months later, you got pregnant again? Yes. The doctors were like, what, what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I was like, you never said I couldn't. Um, you know what? I just, I wanted to keep, keep it moving. I didn't want this to be my whole story and our family's whole story. I didn't want this to be... No child needs that much attention, you know, and for better for That's words, interesting to hear you say that. I, I, I just Because I can see how it would be your natural instinct. Yes, to, yes, and I still do. I mean, I baby her more than probably I should, but I just didn't want our whole family focus to be on her health. And 
yes, it is always on my mind, but I just don't want her to think that it is a debilitating, abnormal situation that she's in. So I was like, let's continue on. We had plans to have a a larger family and let's just not let this bump in the road, bump in the road, stop us. Let's just continue on. And there was risk that we would have another child um, with the same disease, even though they don't know what the cause is. There's no family history that you're aware of. No, no. The hospital doesn't know what causes biliary atresia. And so we took a risk thinking this could happen again. um, But the likelihood was slim. And yeah, we had Poppy was born. um, They're like 22 months apart. So not even two years. She's doing well. Yeah. Healthy as a horse. Doesn't have one concern. And B is how old now? She is. She'll be four in December. So she's like three and a half. She, knock on wood, has not spent the night in the hospital since we left that day for anything other than just a routine one-time test that she had to get done. But she hasn't spent the night in the hospital since, knock on wood. How will her life be different moving forward after experiencing this. So she will always be lucky enough to be a Cincinnati children's child. Um, she will be at the hospital regularly. We get blood draws about every other week and test done. And we have to monitor, monitor everything so closely for her. So when we brought her home from the hospital after her surgery, she was on 15 medications three times a day. It was a full-time job just managing her medication schedule. And now she's on one but it's an immunosuppressant. So her immune system doesn't function like yours and mine. It's suppressed. So she gets sick, gets sick a lot easier. She can't get certain vaccinations that she should um, be able to, if she were um, a, a health, a normal child, I should say. And so there's just a lot of risk for infection, getting sick. Um, it just, things hit her harder. So she takes that immunosuppressant twice a day I've already looked into it at the hospital when she turns six. We can try to to wean her off and see what that would look like. But 90% of kids are still on their immunosuppressants long term. So really, it's the medication, the getting sick, and she has to stay away from alcohol. But I got a long time until that will be an issue. Stay, for, stay away from alcohol forever? or yeah. ideally, really? ideally, yes. Ideally, yes. Because her liver is yeah. a foreign object in her body, and we don't want to do anything to to irritate it. Isn't that interesting to me? Uh, you know, I would assume just since you're her mother and you, you there's some shared DNA there, totally. that, that wouldn't even be an issue. Totally. And that's was my whole point. And there's just, there are not a lot of maternal living donor recipients like B. So there aren't a lot of moms that give livers to children for there to be enough research to say, yes, they perform better. These surgeries do better. These kids do better long-term. They just started doing liver transplants in children in the 80s. Like if I were born in, Born in 86, if I was born with this, I would have died. They had no solution. So this is still fairly new. But the good news is, is because of the success that B has had, they hope that in the next three years, 30% of liver transplants at children's will be living donations. So instead of waiting for the parents to bring it up, they're actually bringing it up to the parents as an option now. Is it safe to say that B was the catalyst? Absolutely. She, I think, definitely led the charge with with, um normalizing living donation for liver. So while all this is going on, your goal was to write every single day about this experience, not just for your own self-therapy, but for her to, yes. to be able to read and see someday. Yeah, we always joke that we created a, um, a scared straight program for B um, because they say when kids have transplants this little, they forget to take their medicine when they go to college because they feel fine or they start drinking 
because they feel fine. And our commitment was that we were going to document everything. So when she was old enough, we could show her everything that we went through for her, everything she went through, all of it. So I had a blog. I started a blog back in 2011, maybe, and it was a fashion blog. And it was like a silly little, you know, I love statement jewelry. So it was about that and transferred into more of like a wedding planning blog. And here's what I'm doing with that. It was just more lifestyle. And then with everything that happened with B, it was my main form, if not the only form of communication on how B was doing, what the progress was like, you know, just informing everybody because anybody that's been through something like this knows it's just hard to keep up with phone and text and emails. And it's so nice to receive those. But this was a good blanket way to get to get updates to everybody. And while all this is going on, little things are cropping into your head like, you know, these hospital gowns are not the most flattering. I know the little things like the little things that seemed to be so important at the time as if you don't have enough going on. (laughs) Well, actually this all started because there's so many things that happened while we were in the hospital. We received a package of t-shirts from the spotted goose in Oakley, Amy Fessler. She owns the spotted goose in Soho, which is a women's boutique. And she dropped off these t-shirts. She had a logo made that said, be strong with a bumblebee. Long story short, we started selling them to people and raised almost $40,000 for the hospital just in t-shirts. And we got very involved with the hospital from um, a donation and research level. And this was just another thing. I just wanted to get more ingrained into how to help support the hospital. And one of the things that we did leading up to our surgery is I've, you know, because I love clothes and jewelry, I was like, Jordan, I think we might need matching hospital gowns. Just so we feel good. We're going to look good. We want to feel good. And so much of this is psychological. So every totally. little bit matters. Right. I mean, every little bit matters. And I think it's a lot different when you're looking at a child in a hospital gown versus looking at them in a hospital gown that is theirs, that is like clothing to them. It just, it makes everybody feel better. So we had hospital gowns made for ourselves matching and had our surgery. And it's actually really funny. My husband later had them framed for our house, like basically like football jerseys. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. really funny. Um, but since then, we started a nonprofit called Look Good, Feel Good, where we create custom hospital gowns for kids with an extended stay at Cincinnati Children's. Look Good, Feel Good. Look Good, Feel Good. Is that the name of the I website? Yes. Well, it's lookgfeelg.com. Lookgfeelg.com. Yeah. We um, have about 30 volunteer sewers all across the country, and we work very closely with Cincinnati Children's and the Child Life uh, department there and a four North, which was the floor where B was to distribute those gowns. So we know that biliary artresia is very rare. Yes. You know, we work very closely with the hospital and the research department there to raise money for the research of biliary artresia. It's scary that somebody can be diagnosed with something like this and there's just no cause. Nobody knows why, how, when all this happens. So we're trying to funnel funds to the hospital to support their research of this disease Organ donation is a big passion of ours as well is increasing the list, getting more people to become organ donors to save people. I mean, heaven forbid something would have happened to me in surgery that wouldn't have even been on the table had we had enough organ donors out there to make this a seamless process. And we can always use more organ donors. But the thing about it is, is that Cincinnati Children's is also coming up with ways to grow their own organs in labs. So they are, at the the cutting edge of research on how to grow organs in labs so that eventually if you needed an organ, it would be a lot easier to obtain. 
So we work with them on that as well. So when you add all this up, you had a full-time job while all this is going on, right? Yep. You got the blog. Got the blog. You started this nonprofit. Yep. And all together, you raised somewhere in the neighborhood of $300,000 for Cincinnati Children's. Yes. We um, worked with local. Obviously, we raised a lot of money. We created a campaign um, called 7-7, which was our surgery date. It was July 7th. We asked people to donate $7 in the research biliary, to the research biliary atresia. And through that campaign, we raised tens of thousands of dollars. And then we also worked very closely um, with the gift shop at Cincinnati Children's. And they raised the majority of that money. They donate the majority of their funds to back to the hospital. But we were really big advocates to, to see if that money would go towards the research biliary atresia. And it did, thankfully. So... Yeah, we're just trying to work with them to figure out figure out a, a cause and a cure. Earlier, before you took us down the road that you and Jordan went down here with B, you had said, you know, you were relatively lucky as a kid growing up, great family, and didn't know what it was like up until that point to experience any real-life challenges. How do you think you did? Well, I think I did okay. So far, so good. You know, I there's been... A lot of challenges. We're very, I'm very, very, very close with my family. Very close. My sisters live here locally, married. My parents have been married for over 38 years. And when we talked about that milestone for B, that one year milestone, it was such an incredible celebration. We had immediate family together. We did a dinner and it was her liverversary. My sister had just gotten back from her honeymoon. Her liverversary. Her liverversary. <laughs> we celebrate it every year. Yeah. Um, and my sister got home from her honeymoon the day before the liverversary celebration. And we had a family dinner and woke up the next day, came to work, and I got a phone call right down here in the office. You have to come downstairs. It's an emergency. And I'd never gotten a call like that, no matter anything with B, nothing. And I raced downstairs in the lobby. My husband was standing there. It was raining. And the lobby of this building and said, your dad, it's your dad. And my dad had passed away that night. We don't know what, but he was healthy and just overnight had passed away. And everything with B was a challenge, but that this, I say, I say this because it's something I still feel like I'm going through is the hardest thing that I have gone through. And when I think about how everything has of all happened in this short piece of my life i've i've done okay dealing with everything i think i've done okay i think i could be better i think i think i could be better but i think my parents would be proud you know of the way that things have been handled with b and just staying on top of her health staying connected with my sisters and my mom if they've as, as they've gone through everything and you know you just don't know you live this life thinking this is great. There's nothing really that's hit me that hard. And then all of a sudden, it's like your worst nightmare could happen. And then it happens again. But I just am doing my best. You know, everybody's just doing their best, just getting up, going to work, making sure everybody's healthy and doing okay. But it's a challenge. It's still a challenge every day on both ends. Was there ever a point that 
you found yourself at odds with the doctors. I know that there was some convincing that you had to do when you made the decision to make a living donation. Mm -hmm. You often hear parents talk about their instinct as a parent. Sometimes flying in the face of conventional medical wisdom, you feel, look, this just feels like the right thing to do. Did you ever find yourself at odds with these doctors that were charged with the responsibility of saving your child's life? Yeah, I think initially, yes. Um, Initially, I felt my mother's intuition was coming in like, these eyes are yellow. She's not okay. We got to figure this out. And then the second one was, we're not going to wait and watch her health deteriorate. We have to take action. And yeah. I got some pushback there. But at the end of the day, one of the best, one of the, the best things about Cincinnati Children's Hospital and the reason why it's number two in the country, number one in my heart, is because they are family. They are all about family-centered care. And they encourage you to speak up. I mean, we were at rounds every morning where all these doctors are centered around you. They're talking about your daughter. They invite you into that conversation. They invite you to ask questions. They invite you to challenge them. I mean, there were quite, there were things that were going to happen that we were like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's unusual. What about this? It is very unusual. It's very unusual. And especially the way that hospitals used to operate, even since I children's, it used to be let the doctors do what they want, what they do. They know best and let the parents you know, kind of take the back seat. And they switched that model. I don't know exactly when, but they switched it to be a conscious um, partner in your child's care. And I have felt that tremendously. I have felt empowered. I have felt responsible for the decisions that have been made because I was a part of them. Not that I wouldn't have been otherwise, but I just, I was like, okay, I asked to change this plan of care. Now it's my responsibility that this that this works or that, that this is the right decision. And um, they just, they really help empower the families. How have you changed over the past three years? I am a completely different person. I would say today than I was three, four years ago. Um, I am a lot more conscientious. I'm a lot more. In what areas? I don't know. I just, I, instead of, looking at people and taking them for, for what they are. I just always am giving people now the benefit of the doubt of this happened because something else is going on with you or you're having a bad day because of something else, because people can walk around and act like everything's fine does not mean that things are fine. So that has really changed me. Um, I think I, this has been a big character builder for me. Um, I think it's made me have a stronger relationship with people that matter more. I just, with a lot less time of dealing with bees health, you kind of, you kind of weed out the people and the things that don't matter. And you really focus on the people and things that do. And that's what's changed so much is I felt like I was kind of stretched so thin trying to get so many things done and be friends with so many people and keep everything afloat. And now I feel like I'm really invested more heavily in relationships that matter and are meaningful to me and people. And that includes my husband. I mean, I've known him forever. It feels like, and you can see how these situations can drive people apart. Um, high stress, scary. I mean, you name it, you go through a wave of emotions, a lot of highs and lows. Um, but it's a really good feeling when you get to a point where you realize you really did make the right decision. And it's changed me in the fact that I just, I'm just investing more in the, in the places that it matters. 
do you find that it's hard to talk to people who haven't lived through this experience? Initially, yes. I had a very hard time with it. Um, I had a hard time hearing when B was going through everything, hearing about friends talk about, oh my gosh, my kid has an ear infection and I'm so sick over it and it's going to be okay and all this stuff. And I'm like, you don't even know. Like what you would have given. Oh my gosh, I would love an ear infection. Give me a double ear infection. Yeah, I'd have been fine, you know, but something else that I realized and another thing that has changed me is that you have to take people for what they are. If that is the biggest thing going on in their life, that seems like the biggest thing to them because that is the biggest thing going on in their life. And I probably was that person before. And you just have to be there for people and meet them for wherever they are. But even though your biggest thing is that your child is, you know, recovering from a liver transplant, that is the biggest thing in my life at that time. Or somebody's going through major grief or, you know, those types of things are major. That doesn't mean this other stuff to other people isn't major to them. And it it was very took me a very long time to figure out a way to relate to to come to that realization where I could have those conversations with people. Still a struggle sometimes. Let's talk about your work a little bit. You work here in the building. I do. I am a digital brand strategist. So basically what that means is I consult with business businesses um, locally, nationally on their digital and social media strategy. And I started here about eight years ago. I think it'll be eight years in October with a similar position. I mean, I've been in a similar position. We've grown the team since I first started, but I love my job because what I get to do all day is meet with businesses, tell them the good, the bad, the ugly. And I'm paid basically to give my honest opinion about what they're doing digitally and and how we can potentially help them. So it's a good position. It feels good to be in this job because I am working with clients on solutions. I'm not um, selling anything necessarily. It's more about what issues are you having? How can I help you achieve your goals? And I've loved it. Was there any overlap, any crisscross from your job to dealing with this on a daily basis where you found one helpful to the other? Yes, definitely. I think I I do not think that we would have been able to help raise as much money as we had for the hospital had I not had a digital background. I really capitalized on getting something out on social, getting something that was quote unquote viral of all I'm asking is for $7. Skip your coffee. 7-7, donate towards the research ability Tresia. Coming up with a campaign like that, I think really helped craft um, that successful campaign that we were able to raise money for the hospital. Um, yeah, and I think dealing with different types of people, doctors, nurses, really has helped me in my way of dealing with different types of clients. You just read people differently. You have to interact with people differently depending on how they want to communicate with you. So yeah, it's definitely helped all the way around. So what's next for you? What's next for me? Um, personally, we just moved. So that's been kind of a bigger project locally. Obviously, we're still here. But, you know, I just really I, I want to continue being a big advocate for the hospital. I want to dedicate my life to giving back to the place that gave me so much. I'll never be able to repay them for all that they've given me. Um, they've given me, in my opinion, what feels like a normal life at this point. And what's next is really just more of Um, the good stuff, more of raising money for the hospital, more of partnering them for volunteer opportunities um, and making a difference there. And what do you want Beatrice to take away from this? I want her to know 
a couple things. The first is I want her to know how much she is loved. You know, for somebody to have a baby that, you know, you would have given anything to save this child. I just want her to always know how much we've loved her. And it's the road will be rocky. It still is going to be rocky. But we're also hoping that by leading by example of being strong, being confident, being courageous, having strong character, listening to your conscience, that you can succeed. And I want her to feel empowered to be a strong, independent woman. And yes, she had a major medical setback. And that will affect her for the rest of her life, but it shouldn't stop her from achieving anything she wants to achieve. There's a quote from your blog, I'm told you wrote, that was up in B's hospital room. Oh, I did not write this, but actually was given to me um, by somebody downstairs. They had it painted on a little um, frame that we kept in her room at the hospital. So you're not the author of this. But I'm not this the was author. I wish I that, was. But this really resonated so with you. Yes. And you had this in B's hospital room. I did and still is in her room. Even now, it was the first thing I hung up in the new house, in her room. Would you read it? I would. One day, she finally grasped that unexpected things were always going to happen in life. And with that, she realized the only control she had was how she chose to handle them. So she made the decision to survive. using courage humor, and grace. She was the queen of her own life and the choice was hers. I love that. Love that. Hillary Widener, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And that will wrap up this edition of Person of Interest. Person of Interest is produced by Natalie Jones. And if you found Hillary is inspiring as we did send us an email to poi which stands for person of interest that's poi at wkrq.com we always welcome your thoughts and also feel free to make a suggestion for a future person of interest our plan is to keep producing more of these episodes as long as folks like you continue to support and listen to us so make sure you check back with us on occasion and don't forget to rate and review us on itunes until next time for person of interest I'm Jeff Thomas. Thanks for listening. These are the people behind the stories that matter to you. Thanks for listening to Q102's Person of Interest with Jeff Thomas. 